This is section 90 of Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mark Twain, A Biography, Volume 1, Part 2, 1866 to 1875. Chapter 90 A Long English Holiday. They sailed on the Batavia, and with them went a young man named Thompson, a theological student whom Clemens had consented to take as an amanuensis. There is a pathetic incident connected with this young man, and it may as well be set down here. Clemens found, a few weeks after his arrival in England, that so great was the tax upon his time that he could make no use of Thompson's services. He gave Thompson fifty dollars, and upon the possibility of the young man's desiring to return to America, advanced him another fifty dollars, saying that he could return it some day, and never thought of it again. But the young man remembered it, and one day, thirty-six years later, after a life of hardship and struggle, such as the life of a country minister is apt to be, he wrote and enclosed a money order, a payment on his debt. That letter and its enclosure brought only sorrow to Mark Twain. He felt that it laid upon him the accumulated burden of the weary thirty-six years' struggle with ill fortune. He returned the money, of course and in a biographical note commented, How pale painted heroisms of romance look beside it! Thompson's heroism, which is real, which is colossal, which is sublime, and which is costly beyond all estimate, is achieved in profound obscurity, and its hero walks in rags to the end of his days i had forgotten thompson completely but he flashes before me as vividly as lightning i can see him now it was on the deck of the batavia in the dock the ship was casting off with that hubbub and confusion and rushing of sailors and shouting of orders and shrieking of boatswain whistles which marked the departure preparations in those days an impressive contrast with the solemn silence which marks the departure preparations of the giant ships of the present day mrs clemens clara spaulding little susie and the nursemaid were all properly garbed for the occasion. We all had on our storm-rig, heavy clothes of somber hue, but new, and designed and constructed for the purpose, strictly in accordance with sea-going etiquette, anything wearable on land being distinctly and odiously out of the question. Very well. On that deck, and gliding placidly among those honorable and properly upholstered groups, appeared Thompson, young, grave, long, slim, with an aged fuzzy plug-hat towering high on the upper end of him, and followed by a gray duster which flowed down without break or wrinkle to his ankles he came 
straight to us, and shook hands, and compromised us. Everybody could see that we knew him. A nigger in heaven could not have created a profounder astonishment. However, Thompson didn't know that anything was happening. He had no prejudices about clothes. I can still see him as he looked when we passed Sandy Hook and the winds of the big ocean smote us. Erect, lofty, and grand, he stood facing the blast, holding his plug on with both hands and his generous duster blowing out behind, level with his neck. There were scoffers observing, but he didn't know it. He wasn't disturbed. In my mind I see him once afterward, clothed as before, taking me down in shorthand. The Shah of Persia had come to England, and Dr. Hosmer of the Herald had sent me to Ostend to view His Majesty's progress across the Channel and write an account of it. I can't recall Thompson after that, and I wish his memory had been as poor as mine. They had been a month in London when the final incident referred to took place, the arrival of the Shah of Persia, and were comfortably quartered at the Langham Hotel. To Twitchell, Clemens wrote, We have a luxurious ample suite of apartments on the third floor, our bedroom looking straight up Portland Place, our parlor having a noble array of great windows looking out upon both streets, Portland Place, and the crook that joins it onto Regent Street. 9 p.m., full twilight, rich sunset tints lingering in the west. I am not going to write anything. Rather tell it when I get back. I love you and Harmony, and that is all the fresh news I've got anyway, and I mean to keep that fresh all the time." Mrs. Clemens, in a letter to her sister, declared, "'It is perfectly discouraging to try to write you. There is so much to write about that it makes me feel as if it was no use to begin.'" It was a period of continuous honor and entertainment. If Mark Twain had been a lion on his first visit, he was little less than royalty now. His rooms at the Langham were like a court. Miss Spaulding, now Mrs. John B. Stanchfield, remembers that Robert Browning, Turgenev, Sir John Millay, Lord Houghton, and Sir Charles Dilke, then at the height of his fame, were among those that called to pay their respects. In a recent letter she says, I remember a delightful luncheon that Charles Kingsley gave for Mr. Clemens, also an evening when Lord Dunraven brought Mr. Home, the medium, Lord Dunraven telling many of the remarkable things he had seen Mr. Home do. I remember I wanted so much to see him float out of a seven- or eight-story window and enter another, which Lord Dunraven said he had seen him do many times.' 
but mr home had been very ill and said his power had left him my great regret was that we did not see carlyle who was too sad and ill for visits among others they met lewis carroll the author of alice in wonderland and found him so shy that it was almost impossible to get him to say a word on any subject the shyest full-grown man except uncle remus i have ever met clemens once wrote dr macdonald and several other lively talkers were present and the talk went briskly on for a couple of hours but carol sat still all the while except now and then when he answered a question at a dinner given by george smalley they met herbert spencer and at a luncheon party at lord houghton's sir arthur helps then a world-wide celebrity lord elko a large vigorous man sat at some distance down the table he was talking earnestly about the town of godalming it was a deep flowing and inarticulate rumble but i caught the godalming pretty nearly every time it broke free of the rumbling and as all the strength was on the first end of the word it startled me every time because it sounded so like swearing in the middle of the luncheon lady houghton rose remarked to the guests on her right and on her left in a matter-of-fact way excuse me i have an engagement and without further ceremony she went off to meet it this would have been doubtful etiquette in america lord houghton told a number of delightful stories he told them in french and i lost nothing of them but the nubs little susie and her father thrived on london life but after a time it wore on mrs clemens she delighted in the english cordiality and culture but the demands were heavy the social forms sometimes trying life in london was interesting and in its way charming but she did not enter it with quite her husband's enthusiasm and heartiness in the end they cancelled all london engagements and quietly set out for scotland on the way they rested a few days in york a venerable place such as mark twain always loved to describe in a letter to mrs langdon he wrote for the present we shall remain in this queer old walled town with its crooked narrow lanes that tell us of their old day that knew no wheeled vehicles its plaster and timber dwellings with upper stories far overhanging the street and thus marking their date say three hundred years ago the stately city walls the castellated gates the ivy-grown foliage sheltered most noble and picturesque ruin of st mary's abbey suggesting their date say five hundred years ago in the heart of 
crusading times and the glory of english chivalry and romance the vast cathedral of york with its worn carvings and quaintly pictured windows preaching of still remoter days the outlandish names of streets and courts and byways that stand as a record and a memorial all these centuries of danish dominion here in still earlier times the hint here and there of king arthur and his knights and their bloody fights with saxon oppressors round about this old city more than thirteen hundred years gone by and last of all the melancholy old stone coffins and sculptured inscriptions a venerable arch and a hoary tower of stone that still remain and are kissed by the sun and caressed by the shadows every day just as the sun and the shadows have kissed and caressed them every lagging day since the roman emperor's soldiers placed them here in the times when jesus the son of mary walked the streets of nazareth a youth with no more name or fame than the yorkshire boy who is loitering down this street this moment they reached edinburgh at the end of july and secluded themselves in veach's family hotel in george street intending to see no one but this plan was not a success the social stress of london had been too much for mrs clemens and she collapsed immediately after their arrival clemens was unacquainted in edinburgh but remembered that dr john brown who had written rab and his friend lived there he learned his address and that he was still a practicing physician he walked around to twenty three rutland street and made himself known dr brown came forthwith and mrs clemens speedily recovered under his able and inspiring treatment the association did not end there for nearly a month dr brown was their daily companion either at the hotel or in his own home or on protracted drives when he made his round of visits taking these new friends along dr john was beloved by everybody in edinburgh everybody in scotland for that matter and his story of rab had won him a following throughout christendom he was an unpretentious sovereign clemens once wrote of him his was a sweet and winning face as beautiful a face as i have ever known reposeful gentle benignant the face of a saint at peace with all the world and placidly beaming upon it the sunshine of love that filled his heart he was the friend of all dogs and of all people it has been told of him that once when driving he thrust his head suddenly out of the carriage window then resumed his place with a disappointed look who was it asked his companion someone you know no he said a dog i don't know he became the boon companion and playmate of little susie 
then not quite a year and a half old. He called her Megalopis, a Greek term, suggested by her eyes, those deep, burning eyes that seemed always so full of life's sadder philosophies and impending tragedy. In a collection of Dr. Brown's letters he refers to this period. In one place he says, Had the author of The Innocents Abroad not come to Edinburgh at that time, we in all human probability might never have met. And what a deprivation that would have been to me during the last quarter of a century. And in another place, I am attending the wife of Mark Twain. His real name is Clemens. She is quite a lovely little woman, modest and clever, and she has a girly eighteen months old, her ludicrous miniature, and such eyes. Those playmates, the good doctor and Megalopis, romp together through the hotel rooms with that complete abandon which few grown persons can assume in their play with children, and not all children can assume in their play with grown-ups. They played bear, and the bear, which was a very little one, so little that when it stood up behind the sofa you could just get a glimpse of yellow hair, would lie in wait for her victim and spring out and surprise him and throw him into frenzies of fear. Almost every day they made his professional rounds with him. He always carried a basket of grapes for his patients. His guests brought along books to read while they waited. When he stopped for a call he would say, "'Entertain yourselves while I go in and reduce the population.' There was much sightseeing to do in Edinburgh, and they could not quite escape social affairs. There were teas and luncheons and dinners with the Dumfrelines and the Abercrombies and the Macdonalds, and with others of those brave clans that no longer slew one another among the grim northern crags and glens, but were as sociable and entertaining lords and ladies as ever the Southland could produce. They were very gentle folk indeed and Mrs. Clemens, in future years, found her heart going back oftener to Edinburgh than to any other haven of those first wanderings. August 24th, she wrote to her sister, We leave Edinburgh tomorrow with sincere regret. We have had such a delightful stay here. We do so regret leaving Dr. Brown and his sister, thinking that we shall probably never see them again. As indeed they never did they spent a day or two at glasgow and sailed for ireland where they put in a fortnight and early in september were back in england again at chester that queer old city where from a tower on the wall charles i read the story of his doom reginald chumley had invited them to visit his country seat beautiful condover hall near shrewsbury and in that lovely retreat they spent some happy restful days then they were in the whirl of london once more but escaped for a fortnight to paris sightseeing and making purchases for the new home mrs clemens was quite ready to return to america by this time i am blue and cross and homesick she wrote i suppose what makes me feel the latter is because we are contemplating to stay in london another month there has not one sheet of mr clemens proof come yet and if he goes home before the book is published here he will lose his copyright and then his friends feel that 
it will be better for him to lecture in london before his book is published not only that it will give him a larger but a more enviable reputation i would not hesitate one moment if it were simply for the money that his copyright will bring him but if his reputation will be better for his staying and lecturing of course he ought to stay the truth is i can't bear the thought of postponing going home it is rather gratifying to find olivia clemens human like that now and then otherwise on general testimony one might well be tempted to regard her as altogether of another race and kind end of chapter ninety a long english holiday read by john greenman